What's up, guys? I'm talking with a friend of mine from business school, and we're basically just going to look at Honkai Star Rail from a product development point of view. Okay, so that being said, uh, I want to point out that I am not in gaming. Uh, I just game as a gamer, so this is not necessarily my area of expertise. So Honkai Star Rail, I've, I've heard of. Yeah. Is this a, a Mi, Miho, Mihoyo or, or the, the people that do Genshin Impact? Yes, yes. It's made by the same company and it's also a huge smash success. The estimates are 100 million per month. Like, no joke, 100 million per month on average. 100 million users per month? No, um, like dollars per month in terms of revenue. Dollars per month. Okay, so that's, that's pretty good. Because what I had heard, because I, I was actually watching uh, somebody play Genshin Impact today, uh, just because I had heard about it recently, I heard that this game is cannibalizing in some way the market for that game. Yeah, uh, looking at it right now, the art style looks very, very similar. Of course, I'm not intimately familiar with, with either game, but I, yeah. mean, I guess it's just a pretty generic anime aesthetic, you know? My guess is that they use similar engines, right? They go for this anime art style. It's slightly different. Um, it's slightly different in terms of art design, but I want to say that the like how the engine works is very similar. Yeah, so actually speaking of, you know, the first thing you brought up is cannibalization, right? Uh, Honkai Star Rail taking money from Genshin. I'm not sure if I completely agree. And, and the reason I say that is I'm wondering if the cannibalization was done on purpose, which is to say that they are releasing Honkai Star Rail at a time when Genshin isn't as big and popular. If we were in a world where Honkai didn't exist, Genshin would be still going down. It's just that because Honkai has released, it looks like it's cannibalizing, but it's really just uh, hiding the fact that Genshin's going down. Is that crazy theory? Okay. No, I, I don't think that's a crazy theory because what that makes me think of is it makes me think of like Fortnite and how Fortnite goes out of its way to, to basically reinvent itself, at least from a map standpoint, every so often, right? I don't know what the exact timing is, but it makes sense. Whereas, you know, people, people would get sick of a world, would get sick of mechanics, would get sick of a, a certain aesthetic and things like that, right? And, and it's natural for, for things to peak in popularity and, and kind of drop off. So I think that's good. But is this like a, a real-time game? And I, I say this because I know Genshin, when it came out, was compared to kind of to uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, which, I mean, when, when you look at it on the surface, it looks like that to me. But this, it, what kind of, uh, what kind of, is it like uh, real-time action, things like that? Is there... Yeah, so let me jump into a zone. So it's not open world, right? So the way it works is that there's different zones on a map. The combat is turn-based. The turn-based squad RPG. So you have your team of characters, and each of them have their abilities, and they take turns doing their abilities. Um, let me jump to a place where we can fight something. And just so I know, it, this is free to play, right? This is free to play. Yeah, we can talk about that okay. later. Uh, because definitely want to hear your thoughts on sort of the monetization of everything. This is interesting, right? Because because this is the kind of game that you hear, especially like a company like uh, Square uh, Square Enix. You know, they they've moved away from turn-based for a lot of their high-budget games, and 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 now this game is coming out. And obviously, if if it's a free-to-play game, you know, they they want to get as many users as possible. Especially, you know, the more users you get, the more you can monetize that, more at least monetize certain ones who will pay more, right? And it's interesting because you know it, it seems that turn-based at least in some sectors of the industry, is seen as more of a antiquated thing that was, it was done because of technology. Well, I think turn-based games, I'm thinking like really old school Game Boy Advance type games where like, like Pokemon Red, Pokemon Blue. But I would say that most of the time you're spending uh, your time in this game outside in this 3D world. If it was in a zone and it was only turn-based combat, do you think this game would not do as well? Like, do you think this game would be way less interesting? Yeah, I, so I myself don't find turn-based combat particularly compelling on its own, right? Like, at least the games that I always played, you know, and I, I, I've been playing turn-based RPGs since I tried to demo Final Fantasy VIII at the end of uh, the PS1 lifecycle. 
right? Or or Pokemon Blue. I was I, I, I did that, right? So I've been I've been playing for quite a while. But to me, the turn-based games that I enjoy the most are the ones that are uh, have a world that I'm enjoying exploring, and it's almost like the the combat is annoys me. Right. And part of that could be because the old school way of designing things you know, for a turn-based game was you were going to have an area and you're going to, you know, as you walk through it, you're going to have random encounters. If you just had battle after battle and it was a hallway, I it's not something that would appeal to me. Right, right. But of course, there's, I'm sure there's segments of gamers who enjoy that kind of thing, right? Because I, I, I think of like something like a stereotypical Korean MMO, which is, you know, you just fight stuff to grind and to get to get bigger numbers right so to me gaming is about a journey it's about seeing something new it's about experiencing something different i I don't necessarily know that the the mechanics appeal to me as much in this kind of game um but again you know i'm not everybody right and there there could be you know there could be people who are who are driven by that so i guess it just depends on on who the target market is who who you're going after when you're when you're building this game and and all that but i, I feel like this is a more modern way to approach it than you know just a, the final fantasy fantasy 13 hallway turn-based sure, combat sure, approach. Sure, yeah which which by the way i think is a really good game and i think it has an underrated battle system yeah, I th- I think calling Honkasario a turn-based game, it's doing it a little bit of a disservice. I think it's mainly in RPG. The combat just happens to be turn-based. Just thinking about it, it's more of a Eastern approach to what they've been doing with stuff like Baldur's Gate, right? Where it's like, okay, you, you wander around this area and then there's turn-based combat. It's almost like a, a Bioware game, you know, like a classic Bioware game, right? Where you yeah. walk around and... You can do all this stuff and then, you know, you see an enemy and then now the action pauses and you, you know, can make those selections. Now, I don't know if it's some kind of like active time, like the classic Final Fantasies, or it's literally like you could you could sit there as long as you want trying to make a decision for what you want to do, which which I think is more strategic. Because I think about, you know, one of the things that I've been playing recently is, is Pokemon. So um, they had Pokemon Legends Arceus, which came out last winter like february of 2022 and then pokemon scarlet and violet that came out in november and the difference there is legends arceus is a lot more i mean obviously pokemon's you know oh this guy goes then this guy goes and then this guy goes but the legend arceus game brought more depth into that by allowing you to change the 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 strength of the attack the speed of the attack and seeing in real time okay well if i go with a light a light version of the attack here now i can go twice before i you know, get attacked by this enemy, right? And opens up some of that strategy. So I really like the analogy or comparison you made with Baldur's Gate. It really does feel like that. You play quests, right? And it's open world, right? And then when you do combat, it's turn-based. What's very interesting is that these Bioware games, they're a premium experience, right? You pay upfront $40, $50, $60, and you get this very long single-player campaign. I enjoy that for like around 80 hours. This game, however, is free to play. They don't give you all the story upfront. What they do is there's the base game, which has around, let's just say 20 hours of gameplay. And then with each patch, they introduce another five hours of gameplay. So the story and the quest build up over time through a free to play experience rather than you know 80 hours upfront with a premium price tag. Do you have any thoughts on that? So as they add this five hours of story content, as you're talking about, do you then have to pay for it? It is still um, free to play. Yeah, you do, you do not have to pay for the patches. Yeah, because I asked that because I've played an MMO where you know they have major patches that you pay for. So uh, it's really interesting that they're giving away that content. Well, I want to know from, from your standpoint as somebody who plays this, do you feel like that that's more likely to bring you back? Do you feel more likely that you're going to spend money on this because of that? It's designed such a way that you always want to play this game, right? Like they designed it so that it's sort of like a evergreen game for every game where because of the new content releases every month and a half, you're always going back to this game every at least once, once per patch. Uh, if you want to keep up with your resources and keep up with everything, you probably want to do this every single day but there's a big drop of content every single month and a half. And so, yeah, so it's designed to bring you back forever, essentially. 
I see characters here. I want to ask about those. But I also want to ask a really simple basic question. I don't see any other people. So this is just a single-player RPG, right? This is a single-player RPG, yep. These these characters, I know from I know from Genshin, they had many, many heroes that you could kind of get uh, through various methods. But is there one for sorry, four party members and then you get a bunch of other ones? Now we're getting to monetization, right? So like you know, you were wondering like how how does this game make money if all of the story and the content is free? Well, they make money through characters. You do get a starter set of characters. They tend to be weaker in terms of power level. And beyond that, basically there are Star Rail special passes. These tickets allow you to summon for new characters. You can earn these tickets through just playing the game. But if you want to make sure that you get every single new character, you have to buy these tickets. So that's how they make money through this game is through monetization of new characters. The new characters tend to be more powerful. They have more unique, flashier abilities. Changes up the gameplay, but it doesn't change up the main story and the main quest. Is there a point when you're playing this game, if you're just playing with three characters, that you feel like this becomes pay to win, right? Because that's that's always a danger when you play these games is that you know you reach a point and you're like, I can't beat this boss without... I don't feel like I can beat this boss without spending money. For the story content that they release, it's easy enough that you could do it completely with the free characters. But story content is not the only content in the game. So there are several game modes in the game that are, we can call them end game or late game game modes that are designed to be harder, that require strong units. At that point, it's a trade-off between do you want to spend money or do you want to spend time? So with the new characters, right, there it's definitely 100% pay to win, right? If you spend money, you get more powerful stuff and you can beat the harder content more easily. The balancing act, right, the free-to-play version, is you spend more time to upgrade your units. So, you know, your units have uh, abilities, they have uh, gear, and you can spend more time to upgrade those abilities and gear to make your characters more powerful instead of buying the latest and greatest. So then, I guess, what is the incentive for doing the endgame content, right? In, in some cases, I guess it would depend on the gamer's motivation, right? So for for somebody near and dear to my heart, I would want to do it once just to say I beat the boss or whatever it is that you're doing and never again. But uh, I know some people are driven by gear acquisition and, and completing things quickly or first, things like that. So tell me about tell me a little bit about this concept. Yeah, so what I'm showing you is one game mode. It's called Pokemon Hall, Memory of Chaos. And this is one of the end game uh, game modes. So in terms of pure like direct incentives, if you beat it, you get more currency. Another incentive, like you mentioned, is pride, right? If you play these games, you want to see how strong your characters are. Yeah, you want to just test your strength, right? Like, why do you play games in the first place? One reason is to challenge yourself. Uh, and it's almost like a puzzle where you want to see how to play your team to beat the hardest difficulty. What's very interesting about Honkai Stereo is that there are people, and there's actually a lot of people, who spend money on this game, and they don't care about the in-game content. They don't care about the power level that they get from new characters, but they're still willing to spend a lot of money on the new characters. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise me at all because I, I mean, lots of games out there monetize cosmetics, right? And a lot of people are very concerned about the way they, uh, way they look, right? And it's, it's not just, it's not even necessarily uh, limited to these free-to-play games. I mean, you know, there's, there's games out there like, uh, for example, MLB The Show, right? A sports game. Well, would you initially think that people want to look good in a sports game? I mean, not really, but in some cases, you know, some cases there's uh, benefits tied to that or people have desires to recreate themselves or others, other other people that they know. And, you know, that's part of it, right? Is is being able to say, okay, well, hey, I was able to do this, so I'll spend a little bit of money. And then it's, it's really easy to get to get into that habit and that loop. At the moment, there isn't any customization. So when you buy a character, uh, your character has this you know, set design uh, with the set costumes and stuff. I'm pretty sure in the future, there will be kind of some kind of skin system, right? Where you can change up the costumes and everything. But for now, you're essentially buying into a, you know, a preset character that they've already designed. When it goes into seasons, like you showed me some of the currency, is it the case that they have X number of characters available, and then once they're gone, they're gone, they don't bring them back, or, or, or are they always available once they're introduced? Yeah, uh, no, you got it right. So 
look at this, right? If you can see, it says 17 hours left. So this character goes away in 17 hours. And I know this isn't necessarily like a fighting game or anything like that, but one of the things I thought about recently is when you create a game, the concept of balance, right? And, and, and not making, giving things an overt advantage. Now, as a single-player RPG, maybe that's not important, right? Maybe, maybe part of the business model is that, okay, well, we intentionally don't want balance because we want these paid characters to be stronger. In a way, as a, as a gamer, you, you kind of want to feel like you're not necessarily handicapped by the choices that you have, you know, because one of the things that, that you realize as as a gamer is that if given the opportunity, there's a certain segment of a player base who will optimize the fun out of everything. That's very interesting. So this game does attract an audience that cares a little bit more about strategy, right? There definitely is a substantial user base who does care about, you can say, optimal game patterns. Or optimal play patterns. That's because I mean this just genre is a it's a squad RPG strategy game, right? You want to figure out like how can I optimize my damage per turn? Uh, you know what stats do I need to reach to be able to beat certain bosses? I would say that this is kind of the nature of the genre. This goes back to my experience with with again MMOs where you know you get to a certain point and okay, you, you need to do end game content or, 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 you know, what's considered raid content or things like that. And you know, people are like, well, you got to go through this, and you got to wear this gear and, and all that. But doesn't it make it a better product? Doesn't the need for outside resources and outside content creation create this inherent, this like sort of natural organic ecosystem for marketing your game? If you have all these content creators I telling you how to, you know, how to optimize and how to play the best? Maybe, but as, as a consumer, as a player, I want to be able to see those things in the game. And I don't know how transparent this game in particular is on how certain pieces of gear or certain characters might affect your power levels and things like that. But if they provided that within the game, I think that would actually make it a lot more fun. To, it's it's to, not. To yeah, it's not, it's not very transparent. When you need an Excel sheet to, to have fun, how is that any different from work with the GUI? I, there are people who enjoy that. I think there, there is a player demographic who actually enjoys that kind of thinking and um, optimizing play style. But I guess like, my question for you is, say that the game was way easier, way more intuitive, right? You just know what to do. Do you think that makes this game a better product if it was easier? Here's another analogy, thinking about the Soulsborne genre right because when you were mentioning before about oh some people like hard content for the sake of hard content i think the people who like soulsborns like hard content for the sake of hard content but there in a weird way i think it's more accessible to all players because you could have just the crappiest build right i mean you've seen people play soulsborn games like naked with like a starting weapon <laughs> right and uh you know they'll run around and they'll they'll defeat all the bosses and and, and or they'll or, or they'll speed run the game and right there's definitely some skill involved but they don't you could chip away at the boss and still beat it without necessarily having to optimize everything now there's obviously some of those like speedrunners and things i mentioned that's their game is to optimize this stuff but i feel like there's there's people in between who are like yeah i want better things but I don't want to feel like I have to, you know, take a, you know, a university course on how to succeed at a game. Is yeah. your hypothesis yeah. that if the game is more accessible to casual players, you get a wider audience? Yeah, and to piggyback off of that, not only do you get the wider audience, but you get more of it. If you balance that line properly, my gut instinct is that you're going to increase the volume but just by naturally increasing the number of players you're going to naturally increase your revenues because the more people that you get to play there's going to be some percentage of them who are compelled for one reason or another to spend money on it. so i'm actually going to provide an opposing take on it the game's difficulty doesn't really affect its audience size because when a person a gamer first discovers the game there's nothing telling them how hard or easy the game is they're attracted to this game because the marketing materials look nice, this very flashy, right? This very like this hot characters you want to play, or the type of gameplay is something that you like. Difficulty is something that's really never communicated. 
that's why I'm not buying into this hypothesis because I don't think players even know about difficultiness and casual accessibility when they first stumble upon a game. Okay, I I might I might have bought that 15 years ago, but not in the day of internet and Twitch and you know like everybody's connected to everybody and people are part of many many different communities and if something reaches at least some level of popularity or even if it's a really niche thing right if, if somebody's interested in it they'll they'll go seek out information about it they'll go watch videos they'll go read about it so i want to add another um, argument for the difficulty discussion right which is to say that it's very easy to identify extremely hard games right that's your soulborn games and maybe it's very easy to identify the hyper casual games where like you just roll a dice and you get something. But for let's say let's just say the middle 80%, right? From the 10th percentile to the 90th percentile, can you really assess that? Right? Can you really get an understanding of a game if it's in the middle somewhere? To me, the game design philosophies that I see nowadays are that the majority of them are designed to at least be accessible and beatable if you are competent. As a game designer, and again, I've never been a game designer, but as if I was putting myself in their shoes, I would say that my goal would be I want these gamers to experience my work, right? And the way to do that is to make it accessible to people. I, I, and, I think what, what this game does really yeah. well is that there are this content for all demographics, right? Like I said earlier, the main story quest you can do very easily without any difficulty. And then they also make game modes that are very tough for the more you know hardcore players. So I guess like maybe that's like a hallmark of a good game or a good product is that there are elements and systems that attract all demographics, right? And that might be one of the reasons why Honkai Sario is so popular. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about was actually uh, the whole gotcha mechanic, right? Are you familiar with gotcha? It's basically loot boxes. What are your thoughts on this type of monetization? Like, do you think it's predatory or do you think it's okay? There's a way to do it that's predatory and there's a way to do it that has been done for decades and decades like baseball cards, right? So when you buy a pack of baseball cards, generally, you know that you're, you might have a chance to get a, a more limited edition one. Maybe it has a piece of a jersey. Things like that, right? So I, I think that is accepted. And I, I, as long as you understand what you're getting into, which in, in my mind, some of these gotcha things teeter on the edge of doing. But I mean, if you're saying, okay, well, hey, you're going to get a character. You're going to get this kind of rarity of character, this kind of power of character. I don't see a huge problem with that. Where, I, where it might get a little bit predatory is if it's like... Uh, go into a literal gotcha machine, you know, with the actual toys in it, and you could put in $10 and get six of one thing, and then, like, you never get, uh, never get a, a rare item, right? So it's almost like if there, if there was different tiers of tickets that, that kind of guaranteed you things, that would, that would make more sense to me. Based on probability, if you spend around $100, you can get this really strong character. Would you rather go through the gotcha system and pull, let's just say a hundred times, or would you rather just pay a hundred dollars for that character? Personally, I would rather just pay a hundred dollars, right? But I, there's, I'm sure there's a segment of the population who is like, man, I really like the chance of getting this, right? So they'll, they'll be willing to do, spend maybe $25 for the opportunity to pot potentially get it, still get some other characters. So you're getting something for your money. It's not like you're, you're getting junk or just like, you know, uh, maybe like uh, single-use items or consumables or whatever, but you're you're still getting viable characters for your money, but maybe not the one you want. And then say, okay, if I put in twenty-five dollars to try to get this character, and I get this character, that's awesome. And if I don't, well, whatever, I got other stuff for it. And I, I think that's one kind of person. I think the other kind of person who I tend towards is like, okay, I see this thing; it's a hundred dollars. There might be a cheaper way to get it, but I'd rather just pay a hundred dollars because I know I'm going to get that. I'm going to defend the gotcha system here. You go in expecting to have to spend, let's just say, $100 worth of currency. But within the gotcha system, there's always a chance you get it early, right? If you can get it like way early, way before the probabilistic chance of getting it, it feels really, really freaking good. So that's my defense is even though yeah, but on average, it costs a certain amount, 
the random chances of happiness and excitement when you can sort of cheat and get lucky, I think that pays off. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, but okay, that right, that right there is is extraordinary, extraordinarily manipulative, right? And that to sure. me is like where I was, where I was saying, okay, if you gave me now, if you came to me and said, okay, the odds are that I'll have to spend a hundred dollars to get a certain character, or I can gamble up to invest in gotcha polls up to like $125 knowing that when I hit the $125 mark, I'm absolutely going to get that character and I don't have to spend an additional $100. Then, okay, I can see your point of, I got a discount, you know, because you're not, you're going to get what you want for spending the money. You're going to spend a little more for, for maybe being able to get that discount. But at the end of the day, you're going to get the thing that you're after. Do I wish that all gotcha games had the option to just be like, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna straight up buy this thing or I can do the gotcha pulls? Yeah. The way I see it is, yeah, you're approaching something which you know has some kind of fixed cost, but there's a chance that you can get it at a discount. You know, you know you're gonna spend $100, but maybe there's a chance that you get like a 25% discount. And that feels good, right? That's not really bad. You and I have been to business school. We've studied all this. We've thought about all this at length. But are these people really thinking that way? I can't say for certain that most people are. So the audience is pretty wide range, right? There are for sure um, teenagers, kids playing this game. But there's also people who are like, you know, over 40, over 50. Let's move on to the next uh, monetization uh, item. So like most games in the industry, this is a battle pass, right? Battle passes have now become the norm in every single game. And this game isn't different. Uh, there's a $10 battle pass, there's a $20 battle pass. And the battle pass gives you a lot. If you were to buy the battle pass, you can sort of think of it as you can play the game more. You can play the game up to like even like 50% more. Like that's like the advantage of getting the battle pass. It's actually pretty huge. Forgive me for being ignorant here, but you can say, oh, you can play the game up to 50% more. What does that mean? When I say you can play the game 50% more, I'm talking about it gives you resources to level up and upgrade more characters. And there is some of that energy refresh that comes with the battle pass as well. Basically, without the battle pass, you have to be very disciplined on what you do in the game. Right? You can't just do whatever you want, else you just spend all your resources. But with the battle pass, it gives you a lot more freedom to try new characters, do whatever you want. I think it's fine, you know, and, and obviously the point of the battle pass is to, to get that revenue into you and to say, you know, get that, to get that call about, oh, I'm at level 47. If I only paid, then I can get all these other things. And aren't they great? And aren't they useful? Aren't they going to help me play the game more? I don't know that I have strong opinions either way on this. I think for a free-to-play game, I think this is a really reasonable way to monetize it's very clear to you what you're going to get. Like if you, when you put in the time investment to get to that point, you put in the effort to get to that point, then now you see everything that you're going to get. You see the order that you're going to get and, and you're going to see the things that you're going to get if you pay or if you don't. So in, in this way, I think this is the most transparent way of monetizing a free-to-play game. Look, I, I think there are all different ways to monetize a game and, and you need to pick and choose which ones are best for you. But in a way, there's, there also could be fatigue, right? Because the user could say, I, I pay for this and I pay for that and I got to pay for this other thing too. And, and again, there's, there's a balance between spending time and spending money to get advantages and resources. And maybe you're rich in one and poor in the other. If I were designing the ideal game for the player, the ideal free-to-play game, I would almost say, okay, you can pay me, you know, for all this stuff. You can get cosmetics as you go. You can do gotcha pulls. You can do the battle pass. Or you can pay me, you know, for every major content update, $40, 50 60 $70. And you just get everything. That's a good point. Do you think it's predatory that when you get a battle pass, they make you work for it? So you don't immediately just get everything that you bought. You actually have to work to get all the things that you bought. No, I think that's an incentive, but where it gets so um, thinking about battle passes, like I know that uh, Halo Infinite, for its part, when you buy a battle pass, it doesn't go away, right? You bought a battle pass when it was active, and now you can continue to work toward that battle pass indefinitely. Whereas something like this, I'm going to go this goes on away. the assumption here. 
Yeah, exactly. So that you buy the battle pass and you have to play within a certain period of time. I, I, I just, I don't agree with that. Right. Whereas I think the, I think the, you bought the battle pass, you have the right to get everything, but sometimes you might have to work for it is a little bit better. But if you buy, so if you buy, if you pay extra money, I feel like you should get at least something for it without spending the, you know, something really, really uh, special, something premium uh, without having to spend that time because you did spend money. Right. I, and to me, that, that means that this is a valued, valuable customer and it should be rewarded as such. The way battle passes are designed is to be extremely high value. So, like, this is the best bang for your buck out of anything you can buy in a game. Uh, and that's within the battle pass. So, effectively, it's like the game paying you to play the game. The, the game is going to you such big discounts and so many currencies and resources if you just play the game. And the more you play the game, the more you get. You know, wasn't that the premise of those blockchain games that they were trying to push a couple of years back? And people were like, oh, yeah, this is, uh, you know, the more you play, the more you earn. But it, it wound up kind of uh, burning itself out before it got very far. I mean, it is. Yeah, it's very similar incentives for sure. That's like how the game developers are essentially like trying to juice up engagement, right? Try to get people to keep playing the game, play the game every single day because you bought this high value item that's unredeemable if you play the game a lot. You know, you'd be remiss if you thought, okay, well, you know, the the only goal is getting people to spend money because there's absolutely a premium attached to user engagement, getting people to spend time with the game that obviously positively impacts the way your company is viewed by investors, right? Yeah, um, for sure. So there's 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 both both elements of that, and that's something that has become prevalent even in you know traditional box games like uh i can think of assassin's creed is a big one which is just like okay they keep adding they keep adding free stuff to engage you so speaking of engagement this game has the stamina system or the energy system or whatever you want to call it that you referred to earlier activities in the game cost energy and you have a limit of you know 240 energy per day so after a certain point you run out of energy to do activities in the game Okay, so looking at that, that to me is infuriating. If I'm going to play a game, I'm going to play as much as I want. And, and that's the attitude, the attitude that I, I have toward it, right? And just looking at that, if you bring that screen back up where you could refresh your energy, show me that again, because it looked like there's two different kinds of currencies you could, you yeah. could use to refresh your energy. And so, right there, that right there is is one of the things that I think free to play games they just shoot themselves in the foot because they bring in so many kinds of currencies and so many different things you could trade in. It's just like, well, what is this purple crap and what is this orange crap? Do I need both? Do I need one thing? Obviously, here select a way to replenish. To me, that says okay, that's one thing. Um, but then it just gets it just gets to be an absurdity, right? Because it's. There's this weird layer of abstraction where these games obviously want you to buy their currency. Okay, so once you buy their currency, then now you have 100 orange widgets. And then, you know, okay, well, when you ask me to spend seven or 75 orange widgets to refresh my power, what does that mean, right? So in a way, you're disassociating the value of the money that you pay for those orange widgets with the, the amount of money it takes to refresh your energy right so you don't know how much you're quote unquote spending to do this sure um whereas you know if they said okay give us two dollars today and you can keep playing right <laughs> that makes a lot more sense to people yeah yeah uh get what we're saying one of the reasons uh is just economy influence and like power over economy so the orange widget right you pay money to get the orange widget uh and the purple jar is a item in the game that you can earn, or you can get this item through buying the battle pass. So the idea is they can change the levers and knobs in the background to carefully balance the inflow and outflow of you know different types of currencies and the, the different systems that give you the currencies. Well, I mean, that's all well and good, but why can't I, you said I earn purple things from playing and I earn orange things from buying things. Why can't I just earn orange things from playing and buying things and you can just adjust the rate at which that happens unless they're afraid that okay well if they try to adjust the rate then people are going to be like you raised the price or i mean i guess that's a consideration the main thing is that there's so many different reward systems and 
if they all universally fed into one thing, the economy can easily get screwed up. At the end of the day, it's really just about control over the economy and making sure that like things don't go crazy. So you want to play the game as much as you can, right? But the game developer rather have you spread that 100 hours over one hour over 100 days. That's like the motivation for them to have this kind of energy system. A different way to implement the system is activities cost some other kind of resource. Uh, let's just say it costs gold. You could choose to spend all your gold doing a lot of activity in a short burst of time. Would you rather have that kind of control or would you rather have this more regulated 240 per day type of gameplay? Coming from the world of, um, I prefer a box game and, and all that, uh, I would just rather be able to play as much as I wanted when I wanted to. I guess it, it would depend how much I enjoy it, where I am in, in life, right? Some periods are busier than others. Sometimes you're like, okay, well, a game that I can play a little bit every day, I can play for an hour or two every day is all right, because that's all I have to play, right? I, I don't necessarily have that time. And I think that fits into a certain lifestyle or period of somebody, some, somebody's life. Whereas, you know, sometimes you're like, well, I got, I got like a, a week off of work. I'm not going to go anywhere and do anything. So I'm going to, I'm going to like mainline this game and, until, you know, until my eyes fall out. I guess that's where some of that gold and spending your gold to, you know, continue playing comes in. But, and look, I, I get why they have the energy mechanic, right? They, they want to boost the engagement, you know, obviously somebody who plays for a hundred hours over, you know, two weeks uh, is a different kind of engagement from somebody who plays over a hundred hours over two months. And, you know, one thing may look better than the other thing, but it also gives them time. If you spread out that, you know, the time that somebody's playing over, over a longer action period of real time uh, gives time for the company to develop more content to keep people playing. Right. So there's right, this, right. They would consider it a, a, a virtuous loop, right? If they had confidence that their content was compelling enough and people would come back to play it regardless of, you know, okay, well, hey, it's been, you know, two months since we, we did a content drop, but we know that the people who are, you know, the game is so good or the game is so sticky that we know that the people who finished our previous content after two weeks are going to come back and play this new stuff because they just really love it. That would require a world of perfect information, which is not the world that we live in. Yeah, so this is game designers definitely play into human psychology, right? It's much harder to get somebody to restart their playing journey. But if you were to have them play the game a little bit every single day, when that new content drops, they're already playing the game. You need to do a new conversion. That's like sort of why it's designed that way is because it's so much harder to bring players back after they stopped. So better to just make sure that they never stop playing. I get you. It makes, it makes sense to me. You know, when I hear these things and when I talk about when I talk about these things with you, it just reminds me personally that almost like you're being used, right? You're being manipulated for the for sure, yeah. desires of of the developer and the, the, the publisher, obviously, right? And and their goals. And if you sit down and really think about it, it, it doesn't feel good. So this is some of the arguments I make, like I, I understand that they are not necessarily good for business, but they're as a customer, the way I think about any business is if you serve me well, I'm going to remember you and I'm going to keep coming back. A lot of these free-to-play gotcha games, um, in my opinion, and uh, I don't want anybody coming after me for this, but I just I don't feel like they're very good games. I feel like they're just psychology manipulation tools. No, right? you're right. You're and, right. Uh, there, there is a lot of bad gotcha games. Yeah. Uh, now I'm going to get real philosophical. People on this earth... Uh, are only on the search for a limited amount of time. And one of the things that I, I've personally realized, and, and pe other people may not necessarily feel this way, is that I realized that my time is is very valuable, right? It's not something that I would have thought of years ago when I was younger, but it, it's the honest truth of it because you don't you don't get any more of it, right? You have a limited amount. You don't necessarily know how much you have. And so when I look at these kind of games and I say, I see all these manipulation tactics and all these different currencies and all these different ways to get me to spend money. I, I you know, and, and, and the amount of time that I'm expected to play and, and all these different things. I'm like, well, I would rather just go play a game that comes from, you know, it's a traditional game. It comes with all the content. You buy it once, maybe you buy some expansions or DLC, 
And uh, at the end of the day, you can earn all that stuff. Unfortunately, I think it is just driven by business and risk management. Like if you were to make a bet that your game is quality and people come back and it doesn't work, your loss is huge, right? Even if they have a quality game that like, you know, 95% chance people come back, I think they're afraid of that 5% of failure. But if they do it in a live service model where they continuously have the game running and they want you to continuously play the game, they at least get something, right? Even if something doesn't work, they've hedged their bets a bit, right? And they've recuperated some amount of their investment. Well, you know, that's, that's interesting that you, you bring that up because, you know, a lot of these game publishers, and I'm, talk, I'm not talking the traditional free-to-play publishers, I'm talking even some of the, the big name, uh, you know, more traditional studios, like Sony's trying to move into these kinds of games now, right? Yeah. They, they've invested a lot in studios that do these live service games. I don't necessarily know that they're going to be free to play. I, I, I get the impression that some of them are going to be that way. Um, but, you know, knowing that for every 10 games that you develop like this, maybe one or two will take off and be a hit. You're going to lose your shirt. If you look at, if you look at, uh, if you look at an individual product level, the odds that you're going to succeed is fairly low pretty low, honestly. But yeah, yeah. the hope is that the profits for each of these individual, the ones that do succeed, uh, make up for the losses. So I, I get what you're saying about not wanting to take those risks and things like that, but that's inherent in this business problem. If you're going to be in this business, and it's true of, I think, any entertainment company, your hits are going to drive your revenues and your profits and hopefully make up for it. And that's something that's been going on since the days of, Oh, I can like book publishing, right? There's a lot of books that don't sell anything, but then there's big books who do. You know, I'd be curious to do one of these about a more traditional game and 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 talk to you about that. You know, say, okay, we'll compare monetization strategies or even like mechanics. Let me bring up another example. Let's talk about Diablo 4, right? This is another example of yeah. um, engagement. The way Diablo 4 has long-term engagement is that they make it so, so hard for you to get the best items. You literally have to play like a thousand hours. Their engagement strategy is not to make you spread that hundred hours across one month. Their engagement strategy is to make you play the game 10 hours a day. <laughs> what do you think of that? Those, those top tier items, do you have to pay for them or do they just come as part of the, I assume like the season update? No, you you just got to play right? a lot. You, you've had to play a thousand hours to get those items. Okay, yeah, that is a different kind of manipulation. And, but there are people out here out there who will do it. But again, this goes back to once you've played that 1,000 hours, are you absolutely guaranteed to get that thing? Or nope. is it just like... You, you're, you're not. <laughs> you just okay. have to keep so, on grinding. Is that right. reasonable? Is so, that yeah, a reasonable so, so, ask of anybody? I don't think it is, right? So like, is it a choice of the lesser of two evils where you have some kind of energy system to extend engagement versus your chances are so low that you force somebody to play so much every single day to even achieve the goals. What other industry does this? I, I, I name me one because I just, I can't think of, I can't think of any, right? Because there's no movie that you see the credits, you see the end of the movie after a thousand hours, you know, or you go in and it's like, well, you can only watch 20 minutes of the movie today. So you better come back, you know, seven days this week if you want to see the whole thing. There's a reason that gaming is the largest entertainment industry, right? Gaming is bigger than movies. Gaming is bigger than TV. Gaming is the number one top dog in entertainment. I, I guess you could make the argument that nobody's being forced to go get whatever thing it takes a thousand hours to get in Diablo. At the end of the day, you know, some, some people, for whatever reason, will do that. They will choose to spend their time doing that. And yeah, I guess, I guess if you position it that way, I suppose the energy system is not so bad. Um, <laughs> cool, cool. I'm I'm glad I changed your mind, or at least I won you over. I, I mean, it was, <laughs> I changed your mind, but just just hold you a little if, bit to my side. Like a, if that was like a, a ten minute effort to 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 make me say that you were right, uh, <laughs> no, 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 just it's just but, kind of me. It's me trying to like explain why certain decisions are made, even though they seem kind of yeah. Like, I actually want to visit revisit a topic that we talked about a little bit, but didn't really go in depth. Which is uh, characters. Characters are the main way that this game monetizes. Honkai Starrail goes like really in depth with the details of the characters, and they do this for Genshin as well. Uh, I think this is sort of like Mihoyo's 
general strategy, right, is to make these characters almost like your virtual friend. Whenever a new character releases, they have a music video, they have a trailer, they sort of make people fall in love with the new characters and monetize from that. Do you feel like that is something that only Mihoyo has been able to pull off? Like, do you think other games should try to follow that, where like they just go really, really deep into character design and like create these like virtual friends that you want to pay money to get? To increase the depth of the character, I think, is to broaden its appeal, to be able to connect with the character in a different way, whether you know whether it be because you like the way they look or, or because you like the way they play or because they seem just like you just like the voice clips because oh, their personality is so cool. I think. By having that unique touch, by having that unique capability, even going so far as to have maybe like a piece of story that's unique to this person, I think that's super compelling for somebody to want to buy it. But at the end of the day, if I wasn't the kind of person who liked to uh, spend money on these characters or, or you know didn't have I had limited time, then I would feel left out if I didn't buy it. Right. So there's this there's this real FOMO thing going on. I think it's smart to build up these personalities and, and maybe even take it a little bit further than they have. It works extremely well early in the game's life cycle. So there aren't too many characters out. And when you introduce a new character, they stand out a lot, right? They, they, they are the bright, shining star. But what happens if you have like 50 of these? Does each next star become dimmer because there's so much other characters demanding your attention? And I could be wrong about Genshin, but I feel like unless a new Genshin character is super strong, the later characters are performing worse monetarily. I don't know if a game basically can continuously rely on the strength of character design, because after a while, there's just so many and it gets lost in the noise. Am I crazy? Like, Do you think this is a bad take? No, I don't think it's a bad take. And this goes back to what we were saying about balance earlier, which is... You know, you had mentioned something about the power of, of characters and, and, you know, having paid for more powerful characters and developing strategies and things like that. It almost gets to the point where if your characterization stops being a selling point, it just becomes noise and, and, and all that, then you, know, you do have to rely on that, on that power creep, right? You have to rely on, on saying, oh, okay, well, now this is the most powerful. It's like the iPhone, where every time, every time they release an iPhone, it's like the most whatever. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when you have an expansion MMO and it's like, okay, well, yes, I, I did all my grinding and I did all my hours to get, you know, the top tier, top tier raid level gear. And now this expansion comes out and that's basically the baseline standpoint of end game in this new expansion. It's kind of like that, but just care. You almost like have to deprecate the old characters in a way. I think what we just talked about is almost like, you know, an example of the inevitability of power creep is that like you have to find ways to differentiate new content down the line. You know, eventually you just have to bump up the numbers. <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, in some in some ways, for for a certain segment of people, I'm sure that's the appeal of new new things. Right? It's like, oh, this thing, the number is bigger than the old thing. Yeah, <laughs> for whatever reason, reasons I don't understand, that's appealing. Why do people play these like slot machine games? It's just bigger numbers. There are games where literally you row slots and it gets bigger and bigger. Coin Master is a game I'm thinking about. It's like the top 10 game in the mobile space in terms of revenue generation. People just like seeing bigger numbers. This is a very hypothetical question. If you were to design like a squad RPG like Conquest Star Rail, would you prioritize character design or would you prioritize gameplay? Or would you prioritize world building? What parts of the game would you want to prioritize? Me personally, I would prioritize world building. I think a lot of games um, play very similarly. I don't think there's too many mechanics under the sun because most games that uh, most games in certain genres play the same. By the way, looking at this right now reminds me of Final Fantasy uh, 14, just yeah. like the big crystal and stuff like that. Yeah, I kind of want to show off the world building. Right? I think Honkai did a really good job with world building and world design but it's so underutilized. Like when you play this game yeah. every day, you actually don't care about these zones. I'm only going to these zones to show it off to you. But otherwise, when I play this game every day, I never visit this. It's kind of a shame because this is extremely beautiful, right? It's really well designed and you don't play this thing. It just feels so, so wasted. 
when I was telling you I was watching uh, Twitch videos of Genshin Impact today, it, it was because I was a little bit curious about the gameplay, but I was mostly curious about what is the world like. So I don't know if you've heard of or, or done that. There's a gamer motivation profile. You can go and figure out, okay, well, what compels you to play a game? And mine shows exploration. So uh, it's a long way of me saying I was very curious about what is the world like. If you like Breath of Wild, you like exploration, Genshin Impact has a huge map for you to explore. If you play a Mihoyo game, you should definitely try Genshin. Yeah, I, I, I may very well do that because I've, I've thought about it in the past and I'm like, okay, well, curious as to what it's like. So yeah, that's uh, I, I may do that. I may just do that. You know, if you want to get my engagement number, if you're designing a game just to make just to make me engage with it, that would be one of the things we would do. Uh, is just give me the tools, give me a world, and say, hey, your goal's over here. If you could build in a mystery that I have to solve, that to me makes you come back and play your damn game. Uh, energy mechanics be damned, loot be damned. I don't really care. A big issue with, with the entertainment space now is that everybody's, and we talked about this, we, talk, we talked about how, how companies are risk averse and you know, they want to spend so much money. What happened to the kind of games where they spent a little bit of money? And hey, if, it, you know, if it's a mild success, that's okay. Because you can have like a few mild successes that appeal to the right people. There's two issues, right? The first is discoverability, right? If it's a small game, uh, you're not spending much on marketing. People just don't find it. That's that's always the issue. And then the second issue is conversion. It's um, okay, cool. You made an initial game. Somebody stumbles upon it. Are they going to spend money on it? <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, right? If you're making this game for a niche audience, that niche audience better convert, right? If they don't convert, then the game doesn't work. What makes it harder in the mobile space is that there used to be this thing called IDFA, which makes it easier for marketing companies to identify user behavior and yeah. identify like the, the user that they want to target. And since that's been taken away, it's actually much harder to do targeted marketing. Unfortunately, the impact of that is niche games are less viable than before because they have a harder time finding the right audience. It's, a, it's one of those cases of just because you can doesn't mean that you should. I mean, just because I'm sure it's been proven to be effective. But at the end of the day, is that really the right well, here we go again. We're talking about optimizing things for the benefit of the company and not, not for the benefit of the consumer. You can argue it is benefiting the consumer if you're able to offer them more personalized results, such as you know, more niche games, right? Uh, maybe. I mean, but that's, that's assuming that the, the consumer is interested in spending money on that in the first place, money and time on that. Because yeah. you know, somebody could easily check out and say, I have what I need. I don't need anything else. Cool. Is there anything, Look, yeah, anything else you want to discuss right. about this game? I don't think there's anything else I want to discuss about anything because my my throat is dry and sore. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's been a good conversation. It's definitely interesting to look at games as a product, right? Games as a business and try to like dissect why games are made and designed the way they are for these business reasons and for these product reasons.